So that seems like a good way to end a year, taking the refuges and the precepts, recommitting. So tonight I just thought I'd talk about appreciating the Sangha, basically, recognizing that what we are doing, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, by the act of the commitment that you make in your life, the commitment you're making sitting here, we are taking our place in the line of active Sangha women and men that stretches back, at least in the Buddhist Sangha, back 2,600 years to the time of the Buddha. And um, the way I just want to share tonight some of the stories and poems from some of the women who were nuns at the time of the Buddha. Some of their poems, the women and the men, I'm just sharing the women's tonight. Some of their poems have been saved in one of, in some of the suttas, the Terigata. And of course, there's only poems from enlightened women. You know, so there's many others of poems we know that didn't get in there. But the poems and also some stories about their lives, some of them we know more than others. What I love about this is it takes for me away the sense of somehow being distant in time and maybe not real, you know, maybe some kind of mythological thing, but to, to actually hear about, read about the lives of these women and the choices that they made to, to become nuns. And many of them were practicing the Dharma well before they became nuns and awakened in daily life as well. Um, is very inspiring to me because the outer circumstances of their lives are, of course, different from ours, but I can relate to many of the inner circumstances. You know, people don't seem to have really changed that much. And so, I, I don't know, it just really inspires me with the immediacy of the teachings, of the truth that the Buddha shared with us, and of our own capacity to understand this, to live from this truth, to, to really you know, recognize it in our hearts. We're not so different. So these women, I, I mean, I can't talk about all of them, but just to say they, they all come from very different um, backgrounds, some very wealthy and privileged, some poor, some um, came to the Buddha out of great grief and distress and actually having lost their mind from grief. Some were tricked into coming. Some were like dying to come and their husbands wouldn't let them and they had to wait till their husbands died. Some came out of you know, grief at their children's having died. Some just happened to hear the Buddha teaching and you know, got lit up. Some became nuns and right away that was it. Like the stories you hear, they heard one talk from the Buddha and 60 people became arhats. But others struggled for their whole life and didn't really um, come to deep understanding until they were old. So, yeah, just the whole range. And one of the uh, things about the Buddha is that once someone joined his Sangha, women and men, both, you know, in, in ancient Indian, it still is extant in India today, the caste system was more than strong. It completely ruled your life. If you were born in the Brahmin priestly caste, that was it. If you were born in the, the lower caste, that was it. Determined who, who you could live with, talk to, the work you could do. Very segregated. And in the 
Buddhist Sangha, once you join the Sangha, there was no sense of caste. There was no sense of, well, this monk used to be a prince, so he should get better treatment than this you know, monk over here who was an iron worker. Doesn't matter. This woman was a courtesan. This woman was a prostitute. This woman was a poor slave. This woman was a queen. Once they become nuns, it's all just by uh, the day that you joined. You're senior to the person who joins the next day. So that was really quite um, radical in that way, in terms of the way the Buddha set up his Sangha. And, you know, even today in India, I was just reading about it again, there's still a huge movement of the people in the, the lowest caste, the Dalit caste, to, which is a Hindu thing, to become Buddhist. There are many, many of them for a couple, a few generations have been converting to Buddhism as a way of just stepping outside of that really stringent caste system in India. Okay, that's an aside. So I just want to just tell some stories and read some of their poems as they've been translated. So the first (coughs) woman one has to talk about, you can't really skip over her, because she is the one who insisted to the Buddha that he open up his sangha to women. They'd just been monks, men monks, for a while. And this is Mahapajapati Gotami. She was the Buddha's aunt, the, the younger sister of his mother. And when he was, before he was the Buddha, you know, when he was, when he was uh, Siddhartha Gotama, the young man, the prince, until he became the Buddha, his mother died uh, when he was a week old. So his aunt, Pajapati Gotami, was also married to the same king that her sister was married to. And kind of, that kings had several wives, lots of courtesans. It was a whole different scene. And uh, so um, Pajapati raised Siddhartha as her own son. She also had a son herself. And so she was really like his, his second mother. And uh, at some point, after the Buddha, after Siddhartha had left home and... Uh, you know, he was married, he left his wife, his son, he went off, became the Buddha. He came back to his family, and at a period later on, his father, um, you know, respected him, became awakened, many of his cousins, the men in his clan. And at some later point in life, when um, his father had died, so that Pajapati's, Mahapajapati's husband was gone, and her son, the Buddha's cousin, had joined the order of monks, so he'd become a monk. So this left Pajapati without a male family member to live with. And in the India of that time, even higher class women, unless most higher class, unless you were a courtesan or something kind of in some special category, their place in society was defined by the man, the husband, the father, or the son. And so she didn't have any. And at the same time, many other women, and she was obviously a strong leader and a woman, a woman that you know a lot of other women looked up to, the, the head of her clan, the Sakya clan. Well, she was married into the Sakya clan, and her clan was the Kaliyas. So her son, her grandnephew, they went off to become bhikkhus. At the same time, many other 
of the men in her clan went off to become bhikkhus. They were like just, you know, leaving the women behind. The women. And then the two clans, the Sakyans and the Kaliyas, they got into a, a war over the water rights in a river. And these are the two, the two families of the Buddha, right? So he came and talked to them both and established a peace and, you know, eased the, um, the war between them. At which point, some of the men had been killed in that war. Many of the others were so inspired by the Buddha that they went off and became monks. So this left Mahapajapati, and it said 500 women. And Andy Alinsky says when they say 500, it usually just means a lot, you know, not really counted. So <laughs> a lot of women said, you know what? All the men are going off and are dating. Why can't we do the same thing? You know, they had real faith in the Buddha. They saw the power of his teaching and its effect, you know, in their lives. And they said, let, let us go off too. So they went with Pajapati. And she, through all of this, the, some of the qualities that she demonstrates are enormous faith, a real uh, courage and persistence, a dedication. And you'll see what I mean, that she just doesn't give up. It's kind of like the courage of faith, of commitment. She goes to the Buddha, you know, like raised like a son, and asks if, I'll say the, the translation, she goes to him when he's there and says, standing at a respectful distance, it would be good, Lord, if women could be allowed to renounce their homes and enter into the homeless state under the Dharma and the discipline of the Tathagata. That's the Buddha. And that's just the way of saying it would be good. And he says, enough. Don't set your heart on women being able to do this. And she asked three times, which is usually the requisite three times, at which point, if he could say yes, he would say yes. But he didn't say yes. He still said no. And so after three times, that's all you could ask, she left really upset, weeping. And then the Buddha went off with the monks to another town, some couple hundred miles distance or however far. So Mahapajapati and all the women with her, they shaved their heads. They put on yellow robes, which at, in India at the time um, just um, sadhus or renunciates, men and women could go around in yellow. And they followed him. And, and they got to where he was teaching. And it said then Pajapati, Mahapajapati, was standing outside the door of the hall where he was teaching. And her feet were all dusty and bloody. And she was standing out there. And uh, Ananda, kind Ananda, comes along and says, also, Ananda was another cousin of the Buddha. They're all related. So she was also a kinswoman to him. So he says, what's going on, Pajapati? Why are you standing here all dusty and bleeding and crying? You know, what's happening? <coughs> so she says, you know, the Blessed One does not permit women to renounce their homes and enter into homelessness. So Ananda says, okay, I'll go ask the Buddha. And he goes and he says, Pajapati standing outside under the porch with swollen feet, covered with dust and crying, because you do not permit women to renounce their homes and enter into the homeless life. It would be good if women could have permission to do this. And the Buddha says the same thing, enough, Ananda, don't set your heart on women being able to do this. And the same thing three times. Why, we don't know. 
and I haven't personally found it very helpful to go there, <laughs> you know, from this way of looking. But anyway, he said that. So then Ananda, because Ananda is very persistent in wanting everyone to have access to the Buddha. That's one of the beautiful things about him as an attendant for 25 years. You know, he's not trying to like keep people away. You know how some attendants to famous people are like, get back, don't come too close to the famous person. Ananda's always trying to get everybody in to see the Buddha. So he switched tactics. He said, let me try asking another way. He says, are women able, Lord, when they have entered into homelessness to realize the fruits of stream entry once returning, non-returning, and our hardship. These are the four levels, same as men. And the Buddha says, yes, absolutely. They're able. There's no difference. So Ananda says, so if women are able to realize this perfection, and since Pajapati was of great service to you, she was your aunt, your nurse, your foster mother. When your mother died, she even suckled you at her own breast. It would be good if women could be allowed to enter into homelessness. And so at this point, the Buddha says, all right, all right, already, okay. <laughs> and, and so he allowed it. He, there, as the time went on, he made special rules for nuns. And I, as I say, the, the special eight rules that, that um, the, the most uh, unappealing of them being that any nun, no matter how many years, was less senior than any monk, even if the monk was a monk of one day. And a little known thing is that some years later, Pajapati came back to the Buddha and tried to get him to take that rule back. So I think the women were probably the same then. It's like, enough of this, take it back. But he wouldn't. But it sounds like it, from what I can tell, like it's more of a, a social thing. Anyway, who knows? Anyway, he let women become... Oh, in the, enter the homeless life. And so at this point, as you see, Pajapati had this real commitment and dedication based on faith. And then when she became a nun, all these other 500 women became nuns as well. And she um, was really the first real leader of the women. Many women looked up to her because of her allowing this, uh, making this happen, but also because of her setting the example by becoming a nun and living the homeless life. It made it possible for many, many other women. And if you read through, just in the, in the suttas, it just kind of comes out that as time went on, the, the sangha of nuns became a very strong community. I mean, many different communities. And you can see within it that women had their own personalities and their own way of manifesting their homeless life and their understanding. So some women became teachers, like Mahapajapati is one who brought many other women in. The couple of women I'll tell you about next were ones who, just by dint of their personality, became teachers. But others were, say, the compassionate, quiet ones who kind of kept the sangha together. Others were kind of the organizational leaders. Others were more drawn to solitude and living quietly and in silence, you know. They all, in the way that they particularly, uh, their personalities came out. There was no one right way. Let me read you some of Pajapati's poem, not the whole thing. But 
after she's awakened. Homage to you, Buddha, best of all creatures, who set me and many others free from pain. All pain is understood. The cause, the craving is dried up. The noble eightfold way unfolds. I have reached the state where everything stops. Look at the disciples all together, their energy, their sincere effort. This is homage to the Buddhas. Maya gave birth to Gotama for the sake of us all. She has driven back the pain of the sick and the dying. So did you get that, that second to last stanza? That's us. Look at the disciples all together, their energy, their sincere effort. This is homage to the Buddhas. It really hasn't changed. In Thailand, which as you know is a Buddhist country, it's happened over the years that in the Theravada, this, the, uh, the Kuni order, which is the status of nuns that the Buddha organized through Pajapati, which is really on a par with the bhikkhus, ended up having more rules. That bhikkhuni order hasn't lasted in the Theravada. Somehow it all died out. And so ordained nuns in Burma, in Thailand, in Sri Lanka, take eight to ten vows. There's really many more. They're kind of like sub, they're not really the precepts, but there's lots of other rules that the nuns are living under. But they're not formally bhikkhunis. In Thailand, there's a woman, this is from the New York Times, just a couple of years ago. She's a, she's a Buddhist scholar, um, Chatsumar Kabul Singh. She taught um, a, quite a well-known Buddhist scholar in Bangkok, married in her 50s. And a few years ago, she, uh, with the consent of her husband and her kids were grown, she went to Sri Lanka and ordained in another tradition as a bhikkhuni and came back to Thailand. And so she's living now as a fully ordained bhikkhuni, really committed to um, keeping this line of women uh, renunciate practitioners going. In Thailand, this is very political, and she, she gets a lot of flack from some of the monks. Some really support her. It's just a whole political thing. But that she's doing this, is keeping it alive today, I think it's really quite inspiring. This is just one thing from her. She's talking about the, uh, the politics. So this is a conflict between ignorance and right understanding. Her name's Dhammananda now. Quoting the Buddha, which he did say, the health of Buddhism, the health of the sasana, the whole disciples practicing this, the health of the sasana depends on four pillars, male and female monks, male and female lay people. And he did say this, that all four are necessary for a healthy and vibrant sasana to continue. Male and female, monks, male and female, lay people. So Pajapati's commitment has really had a profound effect and continues to. Okay, I'll tell you about another woman who became one maybe the most well-known of the teachers, one who became so strong in compassion because she came through so much suffering herself 
that once she was an awakened nun, it said that she's the one, Patachara is her name, whose name was mentioned the most in the other poems of women as one of the nuns that brought them to the teaching. So she's one of these, you know, like going from bad to worse stories. It would be like worse than the worst soap opera on television, you know, where each new thing is like, come on, <laughs> it can't get that bad. But this is her story. She um, came from a banker's family in Savati, so quite well off. And when it was time for her to be married, as you know, in India at that time, uh, marriages were arranged, and of course, within one's own caste, one's own social class. But she had fallen in love with a servant. And so, of course, her parents would never permit that, so they ran off together, got married and ran off to another town. And they lived there, and, and then she got pregnant, and in the Indian tradition, when you get pregnant, you go back to your home village, your home parents, to give birth. And even so, she wanted to do that. Her husband, understandably, wasn't really too keen to go back. So he procrastinated, procrastinated. And finally, she started on her own, but she was so pregnant that she had the baby on the way. And the husband came after, found her, they went back home. You know, a year or two later, she got pregnant again. The whole cycle is repeated. She starts off. This time he catches up with her, and she's about to start having the baby again halfway there. And a huge storm starts up, a huge storm. So she's having the baby there in the field. Her husband goes off to collect, you know, boughs and reeds and stuff to build her a shelter. So he goes off, doesn't come back. Turns out he's bitten by a poisonous snake and killed while he's off. She has the baby in the rain, doesn't know what happened to her husband, gets up afterwards and goes out, walk and sees him lying there dead. So pretty intense. So what is she going to do? Nothing else to do but get up with the new baby and the little boy and start walking towards her parents. So they get to a river that normally is fairly easy to get over. But because of the rain, it's huge currents swollen, and she can't walk over. She can't walk over with a little kid. So she has to take each, each child one at a time. So she takes the newborn, puts it down on the bank, starts back over. Halfway, she's in the middle of the river. A giant bird of prey comes down and grabs her newborn baby. She starts screaming. The other little boy thinks she's calling him. So he jumps into the river. So the baby's gone, the little boy is swept away in the current, and she can't save it. So she gets up and staggers on towards her parents' village. She gets there, almost crazed, gets to the outskirts of the village, and runs into some guy and says, all I want to know is where is you know, my parents' house, where are they? And the man says, ask me anything, but don't ask me that. She says, what do you mean? She says, don't, don't even ask me. And she persists. He says, well, there was that, see that smoke over there in the huge storm last night? <laughs> yep. The, a tree fell, knocked on the ceiling of the house. It fell and it killed your parents and your brother. And that's their funeral pyre. So that was it for her. Uh, she lost it and basically lost her mind. Just went crazy. And for, it doesn't really say how long, she was just going about mad, walking in circles, 
people <laughs> made fun of her, threw things at her, you know, how people can be. Her clothes were falling off and being rags. And finally, at some point, I don't really know how long, she came to the Jeta Grove and the Buddha was there talking. And she's on the outskirts of this crowd and the people in the crowd and get, you know, this mad woman, get away, don't bother the blessed one. You know, you should stay away. You're too crazy, throwing things at her. But of course, he saw what was happening and called her to him. So she came up and she had no clothes on and some kind man gave her a cloak. And the Buddha just looked at her and he said, Sister, recover your presence of mind. And she did at that moment. And uh, just enough to look at him and say, help me, you know. And he said, well, what's happened? And she tells him the story. And he says, and I... This really touches me because it's so, just so, this is the truth, you know, nothing like, oh, I'm so sorry, that must be hard, you know, just sort of, this is the truth. He said, Patachara, don't think you have come to someone who can help you. In your many lives, you have shed more tears for the dead than there is water in the four oceans. It's kind of like counterintuitive, you know, to what I would think. But he's like, this is the truth. This made her grief less less heavy. And he went on to say that when she herself went to another world, no family can help. No family can help you when you die. And you can't help your family when you die. And he spoke of the Buddhist path. And so this made her want to become ordained. It wasn't like one of these, yes, I'm completely awakened. But it made her see, okay, there's more to this than I know, and can I become a nun and join your path? So she did. And she had periods of difficulty. She didn't just, you know, la-di-da, awaken right away and start teaching. She had to struggle for some time. But when she did, her poem is a really nice poem. I like it because it describes the, the exact moment of her awakening, what she was doing. And that's it's kind of cool. It's also a good advertisement for a willingness to be mindful no matter what you're doing, not just when you're sitting on the pillow. Sometimes those in-between moments where you've been... Uh, what's going on with her? She's had a period of strong concentration, and then she just relaxes it a little bit. Still paying attention, but not that strong concentration. And that's when she wakes up. So she's saying, When they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth, when they care for their wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. But I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Does that sound familiar? done everything right. Bathing my feet, I watched the bath water spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked the bed, and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick of the lamp down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. 
I get chills. Just I could just see the whole thing, just so present. When my the lamp went out, my mind was freed. So obviously, women who came to the order, many women were drawn to her, but especially ones who had periods of deep grief. I read somewhere that of the women they know about, their stories, 18 who had been mothers, six of them came having experienced the death of a child, which you know something that happened rather frequently. I just want to read a couple of poems from women who Patachara helped. One Chanda, I'll just read from Chanda. She was originally from a, a wealthy family, but the family lost all its wealth and possessions when she was a child, so then they were quite poor. Then there was some uh, mysterious plague that came through. I mean, life was hard. This plague came through, and it killed everybody in her family except for her. Her grandparents, her parents, her siblings, her entire family, her husband, her children, only she was left. She became a beggar. So this is her her poem. I was in a bad way, a widow, no children, no friends, no relations to give me food and clothes. I was a beggar with a bowl and stick and wandered from house to house in the heat and cold for seven years. But I met a nun who had food and drink, and I went up to her and said, take me into the homeless life. She was Patachara. Out of pity, she guided me in leaving home, encouraged me, and urged me to the highest goal. I took her advice. It wasn't wasted. There are no obsessions in my mind. Now, another point I like about this is I met a nun who had food and drink. It's like practical, realistic. You care for people. You need to eat and drink. You know, if some starving person comes, you don't just start preaching the Dharma. They need to eat. They need to drink. You know, you take care of people. So I like that. That's just one of many examples of Patachara, people that she helped women that she helped. Okay, this is a different woman who also became uh, one of the most respected teachers. She was said to be foremost in preaching. In other words, she could give a good talk. They always kind of labeled everybody, foremost in wisdom, foremost in preaching, foremost in compassion. So this is Dhammadina. And actually, in the Majjhima Nikaya, number 44, there's a whole sutta that's actually questions asked to Dhammadina, and Dhammadina's answering the questions, not the Buddha. And at the, it's in there because after this series of questions and answers, the person who was asking her went to the Buddha and repeated it all, and he said, yes, what she said is just what I would have said. So that like elevates it to word of the Buddha, it's called, and so it's in the sutta from Dhammadina. So she didn't have a suffering time. She was the wife of a man named Wisaka, who was an important man in Rajagaha, and they had a happy marriage. They're very happy together. You know, whenever he'd come home from, 
from his day of business. He'd come and they'd eat together, which isn't that usual, and talk and share. One day when he went out, he met the Buddha. And he got so inspired by the Buddha's teachings when he came home, he just kind of walked past Dhammadina and didn't say hello and didn't sit down. And she's going, what's the matter? Is he angry? What did I do wrong? You know, right away, right? What did I do wrong? And uh, he called her after a while and said, no, I heard this guy, the Buddha. I'm so inspired. I, I really want to, I'm thinking of renouncing, becoming a bhikkhu. So that leaves you, but I will give you all my wealth. And you really can do what you like with it. You can live here at ease and comfort. You have all my wealth. You can go back to your family. You know, it's, it's completely up to you. But I really feel this call to be a bhikkhu. So she thought about it, and she thought, well, if he can do that, why can't I? I, too, want to renounce. So he said, she said that he, he supported her in that, too. You know, And he called her and took her away on a palanquin and took her to the nuns, and she became a nun and went off and practiced and um, got quite... She practiced intensively, she said, to have the highest insight, and awoke. So sometime later, after she was awakened, she went back to Rajagaha, and big surprise, her husband had never actually gotten it together to, to become a bhikkhu. <laughs> what did she care? She was an arhat. She didn't care. <laughs> and she went back, and actually, he was the one asking her all these questions that made it into the sutta, you know, because he realized, wow, Dhammadina, as a, as a respected bhikkhuni at this point. So she doesn't have a poem so much. She has the whole sutta, which I'm not going to read to you, just one line that when he's asking her, what is meditation? She says, meditation is the focusing of the heart. So she became the foremost in preaching. And her her husband just kind of drops off the map of history. (laughs) We don't know what happened to him. (laughs) Okay, one other happy story. Because then there's a bunch of unhappy ones. Although Padachara, she took the cake for the unhappy. Um, Kema. Kema is the opposite of Padachara in that she was incredibly beautiful. Kema means gold skin. And whenever they talk about someone being beautiful, they always talk about them having golden skin. She was the chief consort of one of the famous kings of the time, Bimbisara. Now, consort's not wife. He would have had all his wives and then his consort, and she's the chief consort. But this is a a position of a great deal of um, respectability, a great deal of fame, really, and comfort, you know. So she was quite conceited, actually, because she was incredibly beautiful. She had this high position. She loved, um, sensed pleasures and beauty and everything. So... Bimbisara was a disciple of the Buddha, and he would try to get Kema to go and hear him, but she wasn't interested. Because she said, look, I've heard, you know, he's, he's, he talks about, you know, he puts sense pleasures down, he's not really into beauty, I don't want to go listen to that stuff, you know. And so she would never go. So Bimbisara tricked her. The, <laughs> the Buddha was... Um, staying and giving teachings at a hermitage that was said to be really beautiful, a really beautiful park. So Bimbisara hired uh, like a lute player, poet, singer to sing about how beautiful the beauties and the pleasures of this grove where the Buddha was teaching. 
So he went and sang this to Kema, and she couldn't resist it because she was really into beauty and sense pleasures, you know. So she said, okay, okay, well, then I'll go. What I like about this is that sense of how we really, like, we don't want to hear. I I like my beauty. I'm attached to my status. I don't want to hear anything that's going to take it away from me. I'm happy like this. Thank you very much. So she went, and, and the Buddha, of course, with his mind that could read what was going in everyone's mind, all he had to do was just see her on the outskirts of the crowd, and he could know who she was, and he could also see that actually she was very ripe for awakening. So what he did was with his you know, amazing mental powers, he projected the image of an incredibly beautiful female goddess, like a hundred times more beautiful than Kema. And she loved beauty, so she, she was completely entranced. And she, wow, that's so much more beautiful than I am. Not like with envy, just entranced. And then the Buddha had this image of this beautiful goddess gradually, gradually go from youth to middle age to old age. And her hair turned gray and her teeth started decaying and her skin got all wrinkled and she just kind of, you know, withered away and died. And then he gave, and then came a, who was no fool, you know, was kind of, huh, <laughs> That's going to happen to me. And then the Buddha gave her a pithy little talk about some people are devoted to physical beauty, and so they're bound to the world. Some people are devoted to pleasures of the senses, and so they're bound to the world. One who renounces this world of attachment is free in their heart, in their mind. Of course, he knew that's one of the wonderful things about being able to have a talk by a Buddha they know exactly what to say to touch you. So she, Kema, is one of the rare occasions of a lay person being completely awakened on the spot, all four stages, right then in hearing that talk. So not for nothing, she's considered the foremost in insight. So of course, this backfired on Bimbisara, right? Because as soon as she was completely enlightened, she went and said, look, I can't be your consort anymore. You know, I have to go <laughs> become a nun, which of course I had. But So she was the nun with the greatest insight. And she was one of the two women who ran the whole order of nuns, you know, kind of in charge. Her poem, her poem's not, not one of the, greater ones. I'll just read you a little of it so you hear, I mean greater, totally personal opinion. But (laughs) Everywhere the love of pleasure is destroyed. The great dark is torn apart and death, you too are destroyed. Fools who don't know things as they really are revere the mansions of the moon and tend the fire in the wood thinking this is purity. Now she's talking about kind of um, rites and rituals. But for myself, I honor the enlightened one, the best of all, and practicing his teaching, I'm completely freed from suffering. Everywhere the love of pleasure is destroyed, the great dark is torn apart. That's the line they use a lot. 
the great dark is torn apart. There's also a story where King Pasinati of Kosala, who was another very serious, more serious than Bimbisara, actually, disciple of the Buddha, came looking for the Buddha for teachings or for a senior monk for teachings, and there weren't any around. But Kema was around. And so without a hesitation, he went right and sat at the feet of Kema and listened to her teachings with the same you know, appreciation and respect as if it was any monk or Buddha. And at that time, that's really something. Just a, a realization within the Buddha Sangha that awakening insight has nothing to do with gender or status or history or life situation. Really available to all and respected as it, as it is in whoever manifests it. Okay, a very different story, which I also like, is very spunky, based on the commitment of verified faith. This is Punika. So she was a slave, so the very different social experience. The daughter of a slave. Apparently there were a lot of men and women who were slaves, kind of a... Um, if their parents were, they were. She was actually a slave in the house of Anattapindaka. Anattapindaka was the most generous of all the Buddhist supporters, and also uh, uh, a Sotipata. So, uh, you know, it doesn't jive with our understanding of culture at all that someone like Anattapindaka could have a slave. But anyway, she was a slave. And in her poem, her poem tells the whole story, but she... Uh, had to carry water down from the river and carry water up. And when she's down at the river one day, she had, she, interestingly enough, it seems that women who were slaves or servants often had more freedom of movement than upper-class women. There's several stories. In this one, Punika, the slave, is able to go out and actually hear the Buddha's talks, where many of the upper-class women are kept secluded in their houses, in their families, and they can't go out. There's another story, maybe if I have time I'll tell it later, of another servant, not a slave, who goes out, hears the Buddha's talks, has this amazing memory, and comes back and repeats them all word for word to her mistress. You know, And they all together get enlightened through this woman who actually, let me see her name, who remembers all of these. Her name is Kujutara. She remembered all these discourses, and actually the ones that she remembered and came back and told to her mistress, whose name was Samavati, are collected in one of the small books in the suttas called the Itivutaka. There's the sayings that Kujutara remembered and came back and told to her mistress. So, in this case, Punika, the slave, was able to go out and hear the Buddha's teachings, and she had... And they always say what love. She had become a sotapanna, a first stage awakened person at this time. And she goes down to the water to bring it up to her mistress and ran into a Brahmin, a man, a Hindu man from the Brahmin caste, who was doing ablutions in the river, like they bathe in the, in the Ganges. And the belief was that by washing yourself in the water, you could wash off all your previous bad karma. 
and purify yourself. And she basically, you hear in the poem, she basically just lights right into him and says, what are you doing? Really what you say, speaking truth to power, but in real clarity, just speaking the Buddhist truth. Let me read you her poem. It's a dialogue poem. So Punika says, I am a water carrier. Even in the cold, I've always gone down to the water, frightened of punishment or the angry words of high-class women. So what are you afraid of, Brahmin, that makes you come down to the water? Your limbs are shaking with the bitter cold. She's talking to this guy. And this guy's name is Udakasudika. And he says, you know why, Punika. I am doing good to prevent evil. Anyone young or old who has done something bad is freed by washing in the water. Punika says, who ever told you that you were freed from evil by washing? The blind leading the blind. In that case, all frogs and turtles would go to heaven, and water snakes and crocodiles and the rest of the water creatures. Thieves, executioners, and other wrongdoers would be freed from their bad karma by washing in water. Also, if these streams carried away all your old evil, they would carry away your virtue, too. Just don't do that thing, the fear of which leads you down to the water. (laughs) She's tough. Stop now, Brahman, and save your skin from the cold. And he, and he says, and she's, this is how it is. He says, lady, I was on the wrong road and you brought me back to the great road. I will give you the robe I bathed in. <laughs> and Punica says, keep your robe. I don't want it. If you're afraid of pain, if you don't like it, then do nothing evil, either openly or in secret. For if you do, Even if you get up and run away, you won't escape its pain. If you're afraid of pain, if you don't like it, take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. Train in the precepts. This is good. It's like a little mini lesson on karma. Uddhaka Sudaka says, I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. I train in the precepts. This is good. Now I am a true Brahmin. I am washed clean, meaning by the precepts. You know, just that sense of when you know that verified truth, there's no fear to say what you know, and it carries. You know, the truth communicates itself. And that's not the end of her story. I mean, she she did want to go off and become a nun, and being a slave, she wasn't free to do so. So she asked the Buddha to help her, and he basically spoke to Anatta Pindaka, who, of course, immediately released her, adopted her as a, his daughter, and blah, blah. And anyway, she became a nun and became completely awakened. That aspect of confidence, confidence in our own understanding, confidence in awakening, confidence in awareness, it's really important. You know, it's really what gives us the the faith, the courage to keep on practicing. It's not something to, oh, no, not me. I don't really know anything, you know. What we really know, not ideas, but our verified faith, you know, it's kind of incumbent on us to share it. It communicates itself.
a couple of poems. Not everyone who became a nun, as I said, just popped awake right away. Came up, you know, without before she even became a nun. She's a really rare case. And I'll just read you a couple of poems that, I mean, I'm nothing personal, but maybe we can relate to <laughs> a little. One is, her name was Vadesi. She was one of the 500 who came along with Mahapajapati Gotami, Gotama. She was actually um, Pajapati's old nurse. So she wasn't so young at the time that they ordained, and she still struggled for another 25 years. She was a hard time being a nun. And it makes it clear it's not easy for everybody. You know, It's a way that one chose, but that doesn't mean it's just all kick back your shoes and be enlightened and you know cruise under the tree for the rest of your life. It can be really quite a lot of struggle. So this is Vadesi. Yeah. Yeah. Susan Murkow said her persistence comes through, that she really had to struggle for the 25 years. It was 25 years since I left home, and I hadn't had a moment's peace. Uneasy at heart, steeped in longing for pleasure, I held out my arms and cried out as I entered the monastery. I can just, I don't know, I can just see it, you know. I went up to a nun I thought I could trust. They say this was Damadina. She taught me the Dharma, the elements of body and mind, the nature of perception, and earth, water, fire, and wind. I heard her words and sat down beside her. Now I have entered the six realms of sacred knowledge. The eye of heaven is pure, and I know the minds of others. I have great powers and have annihilated all the obsessions of the mind. The Buddha's teaching has been done. So she clearly attained a lot of psychic powers, which are kind of like a a sideline, not the main thing. But it's interesting, after 25 years of not having a moment's peace, so you just never know. You never know. It's like that, you know, trying to, um, with, a, with a hatchet, break open a stump, and you hit it 100 times, and 99 times nothing happens, and the 100th time it opens. But you can't discount the 99 times. You can't discount the 25 years. One other one. 42. This woman... Um, she became a nun out of great sorrow. Her name is Sama, but her best friend, her dear friend, is Samavati, who was the high-class woman I mentioned before, whose servant, Kajutara, would go out and remember the suttas of the Buddha and come back and tell Samavati and all her women who were in the court. Samavati, was, the Buddha said she was quite awakened, even though she was a laywoman. And she was known as the laywoman most known for being filled with metta. She just like pervaded metta, and everyone loved her, except her husband's other wife, who was a king. He, she didn't love her. And in fact, she uh, murdered Samavati. She, Samavati and all her women were in a house, and this other wife caused it to be locked up and then set fire to it. And Samavati and all of her women were burned to death in that fire. 
which was a point of the Buddha's saying that Samavati had been the most accomplished in spreading metta. So anyway, this other Sama was Samavati's dearest friend, and she was so upset at this murder that this could happen to someone so filled with metta and so devoted that she became a nun. But her mind was always distracted. She didn't have an easy time either. This was another... This seems to be like a a stock phrase. It was 25 years since I turned away from home and I hadn't had a moment's peace. I had no peace because I did not know my own mind. Then suddenly I was shaken with dread, remembering the words of the conqueror. That's the Buddha. Because of the pain of things, I love to be alert. I have finished with craving. The Buddha's teaching has been done. It is the seventh day since my craving died. I love that one. Because of the pain of things, I love to be alert. She sounds like aversive type to me, whereas the one before, who was lost in wanting things, greedy type, both suffering. I finished with craving the seventh day since my craving has died. Okay, just a couple more. There's quite a few stories of women who only became nuns when they were really old. And this is actually, I don't, when I was in Thailand, I was a nun in Thailand, it was like 20 years ago. And at that time, there really weren't so many nuns as there are monks. And quite a few of the nuns were really quite elderly. And it really seemed that they would become nuns sort of when their families were gone and they didn't really have someone to take care of them. Not, not all nuns were like that, but you really could see a lot of it. Well, so in here there are some women who became nuns when they were quite old. Not the same thing that they're just hanging around being taken care of because they have nothing else to do. I mean, they're really sincere. And one of them, um, she just was called Dama. She's the one I mentioned. She wanted to ordain, but she waited until her husband's death because he didn't want to ordain. So like a good wife, she stayed with her husband. And in her old age, after he died, like a shot, (laughs) she went off to become uh, a nun in the Buddha's sasana. And her poem, her awakening is interesting because she actually woke up through experiencing uh, the misery, the the unreliability of her old aging body. I wandered for alms. I leaned on a stick. My whole body was weak and trembled. Suddenly I fell down and could see clearly the misery of this body. My heart was freed. See, when we talk about really seeing dukkha, it's not to make us suffer more. She really saw it. My heart was freed. Another old woman, and she, uh, this is her poem, how when she woke up, though I am thin, sick, and lean on a stick. I have climbed up the vulture peak. That's kind of like a really high rocky hill. So she climbed up it shaking on her stick. Robe thrown down, bowl turned over, 
leaning on a rock. Then the great darkness opened. And in fact, the nun who was commended by the Buddha for the strongest capacity for effort, was really commended for her diligence, was a woman who only became a nun when she was really quite elderly. Bahupitaka. It said that she had seven sons and seven daughters, and she was wealthy, and they were all married. And then after she was old, she said, you know, why don't, instead of you waiting till I die to inherit my money, why don't I divide it equally among you all now, and then I can just take turns, you know, traveling and living in each of your families. You know, it's not that long in a year, 14 of you. So that's what they said, oh, sure, mother, we'll take care of you. So that's what she did. But as she was traveling from family to family, they got less receptive, less welcoming, treating her like, you know, the old mother-in-law in the way. And so finally she said, okay, enough of this. I'm out of here. I'm going to go become a nun. And by the time she joined, she was old and feeble. She couldn't do much. So the other nuns, not all of them, some of them kind of, they had her doing some simple little chores, but they made a little bit of fun of her. For being so old, she would bring them water and just do what she could. But she was so committed. She was so committed to awakening. You know, so the story's told that one night, the other nuns were all out, and she was just committed. She was just going to do her walking meditation all night. She had to hold her hand up on a wall to hold herself up because she couldn't see. She was so shaky. She was so old, but she was just committed to her practice. And the Buddha saw this, you know, with his mind, and he kind of appeared to her like in a radiant vision and inspired her, and it just so inspired her that she awoke that night. And then it said, this is not in the suttas, this is sort of in the commentaries, that she became a a complete arhat. And then the next day she was just, you don't, one of the classic rules is you don't go bragging about when you're awakened. You don't show up and say, okay, ladies, now I've done it, so a little respect, please. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so she'd become an arhat, and then the next day she came, bring in the water in the normal way. But it's also really, really unwholesome comma to insult in any way an awakened person. It's just not a good thing to do. So she came the next day and they sent her to go heat up the water and they, you know, kind of berate her a little because she's so slow. So she, she had the water before she went away. She knew she had to do something so they didn't have a chance to berate her now that she was an arha because it would be really bad for them. But she also couldn't say, hey. So, so with some magical power of her mind, not magical, but just concentrated power of her mind, she caused the water to be heated. I guess she knew Tumo yoga somehow. And she caused the yoga to be heated. And seeing that, the other nuns knew. You know, they knew. So, oh. Just like when Ananda, you know, and after the Buddha died and there was the council of 500 arhats getting together to repeat all the suttas to kind of start to codify the teachings. And they really wanted Ananda because he's the one who remembered them all by heart, but he wasn't an arhat. You know? So there's that story of how Ananda had to practice really hard the night before to become an arhat. And he was just giving up. 
you know, just lying down, giving up. And it's, that, it's always said is the one that's not in any particular posture. He's just about to lie down halfway between standing and lying when he woke up. So again, the way he signaled that he was an arhat is he just magically appeared, you know, in the, in the sitting at the table with all the guys. And then they said, oh, okay, <laughs> you did it. That was a side effect. So just to know, the one who was the most known for her energy, for her effort, was Bahupitaka, a really old woman. So age, even health, as long as there's wakefulness, is not in the way. Okay, just two more. This one's kind of humorous. A wife, I find it humorous. A woman who is clearly happy to have left her marriage and become a nun. She's just known as Sumangala's mother, not her own name. Free, I am free. How glad I am to be free from my pestle. My cooking pot seems worthless to me, and I can't even bear to look at his sun umbrella. My husband disgusts me. (laughs) So I destroy greed and hate with a sizzle, and I'm the same woman who goes to the foot of a tree and says to herself, Ah, happiness, and meditates with happiness. And then I'll just end with Uttama, because I just like her poem. She was another one who was one of Patachara's disciples from a Brahmin family. I don't know too much else about her. And this is her poem. The Buddha taught seven factors of enlightenment, They are ways to find peace, and I have developed them all. I have found what is vast and empty, the unborn. It is what I've longed for. I am a true daughter of the Buddha, always finding joy in peace. I have ended the hunger of gods and humans, and I will not wander from birth to birth. I have no thought of becoming. That we all can be true daughters and sons of the Buddha. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.